Hey everybody, we have a great show for you today. Once again, I get to interview James um, and we're taking the question that we used last week and we're turning it around a little bit and focusing on agents and how what's the best fit for you um, a 1099 or a W-2. Yeah, and, and we really dive in a lot of detail about compensation, you know, what type of agreements you should look for, you know, what type of compensation should you look for. We even talk about scaling and hiring. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed it, Patty. Thank you for interviewing me. I, I enjoyed it. This was kind of bought back by popular demand because I got, I know both of us got so many questions after last week mm-hmm. from the agents that are like, okay, you talked about the ISO. You know, what about us? What about us? And uh, <laughs> yeah. And then Patty, tell us about the, the news uh, from the Insiders Report. Uh, we have some good economic news. I think everybody's going to be, uh, you know, find it very interesting and very encouraging. Awesome. And, and let me just say this too, for those of you that listen to our podcast and get value from it, if you haven't checked out our podcast sponsor yet, Patty and I could not be more excited that yes. NMI is now the official sponsor of the Merchant Sales Podcast. Um, definitely go to ccsalespro.com slash NMI. It would really mean a lot to me personally. I've told yes. NMI how engaged our audience is. They're already seeing that, but I would love for you to just check it out. Look at what they have to offer. Um, ccsalespro.com slash NMI. So, James, you ready to go? Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Patty Murphy here, and I'm with my good friend, James Shepard. Uh, you know, last week we did a, uh, inter- I did an in- my first interview with James in quite some time. Yes. Since we always interview other people together. Right. And uh, it was a really fun interview regarding, um, you know, whether... ISO should uh, be hiring 1099s or W-2s. Right. And, you know, we I thought maybe it'd be a great idea this week to sort of turn that around and uh, direct a, a series of questions to James regarding agents, whether or not you want to be a 1099 or a W-2. And uh, James, you know, I want to start off with your story because, you know, a lot of people know that you've been really big into training and you're, you know, an right. entrepreneur, you've done all kinds of software development, et cetera. But, you know, everybody also knows that at one point you did sell. And, yes, um, yes, I still do, I kinda, actually. Yeah. yeah, and you still do. But, you know, when you got into the merchant services business, can you give everybody a little thumbnail in terms of yeah, you know, sure. what brought you into the business? And then I want to kind of go into some of these other questions, if you don't mind. Just yeah. to give everybody. It's such a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I, you know, uh, in thinking about it, it's like, I, I really haven't shared the story very much um, lately, at least. And, you know, when I get into the industry, this is going back about 13 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to understand my background before that I was selling uh, lawn care services for right. True Green, uh, Chem Lawn, which, you know, associated with Service Master and all that. Um, and I had become a regional sales trainer and a, a, a branch sales manager, marketing manager for them. Uh-huh. So I had like a six, $7 million a year, uh, you know, branch that I was doing the marketing for and doing the sales training had like 30 sales reps. So I was very much into training salespeople. Uh-huh. That was my passion was like helping salespeople, you know, to sell better and all that. Well, then what happened was my wife and I moved out to Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Um, this is where her family grew up. I came here to visit. I'm like, oh, this is great. I want to I want to move to Pennsylvania. It's a little slower pace. At that time, I was driving like an hour and a half one way to work on the on the north side of Chicago and right, you know, right. working 80 hours a week. And I'm like, you know, I don't know about this. So um, so I moved out here. And long story short, I was basically looking for a real career. Um, uh-huh. And I thought while I'm looking for that, maybe I'll do this thing called selling credit card processing. You know? <laughs> um, 
I've heard that story before. Yeah. So, (laughs) uh, as everybody knows, as soon as you put your resume on, you know, careerbuildermonster.com, whatever at that time, those are the big ones. Um, right. You know, you get inundated with credit card processing recruiters. Right. Right. Um, and so that's what happened to me. And there's a, a company um, that I will remain nameless here. Um, not a very reputable company that brought me into the business. They were very aggressive on recruiting, very aggressive on selling like really high leases on mm. garbage terminals mm. to unsuspecting merchants. Right. Um, one of the things I always uh, crack up about is the first terminal that I ever sold, um, the Hypercom T4210. Right. Um, what they did was they actually took a sticker called the Quantum 2000, uh huh, and it and they stuck this sticker on, on the top? bottom of the terminal, oh, so that nobody would know it was a hypercom and look up how much it cost. You couldn't find anything about the Quantum 2000 online oh, because they wow. were leasing it for 99 to 159 a month for 60 months. Oh my! Oh, and it was wow. worth like 150, like 150 bucks, bucks maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's how I get into the industry. So I literally had a one day, uh, not even a day. It was like a three hour webinar was my training event, a three hour event. And it was, that was almost entirely about the terminal and going through, they gave us this, I will say they did a really good job of giving me a nice presentation book, you know, glossy showed everything, but again, mostly about the terminal. And I was going out there explaining to people how this terminal was going to, you know, really help them. And we were going to save them a fortune on their credit card processing. Um, and so then this was a company that, generated leads. So they gave me like three appointment scheduled leads a day uh-huh. and I would go out and I would visit these leads and then I would go to businesses nearby. Um, I should also mention with this company, my initial experience, um, I had a sales manager who, when I went into the business, I had to call this guy before I left the appointment. Okay. In front of the merchant. So if they said no to me, I would have to call this guy and say, Hey, I'm here with Susan. I just talked to her about the quantum 2000 and she's not interested. And then he'd be like, okay, can I put me on the phone with her? And I'd say, Hey, my manager wants to talk to you just to confirm that, you know, I did come here to the appointment and did my job, you know? Right. And then he would then try to sell this person as well. Oh, wow. While I'm standing there. It's super embarrassing. Yeah. So so that was how I got into the industry. What happened for me was, and kind of where it, it goes into this whole 1099 W2, which conversation we'll have today that was 1099. I was treated like a W-2, but it was 1099. And what happened was I realized within a very short period of time, you know, just a matter of a couple months at most, I think maybe not even that long, but it was very quick. I realized, wait a second, because what happened was that sticker peeled off. Right. And I'm like, what's a Hypercom T4210, you know? So I looked it up and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm selling these for like $6,000 because it's like 99 (sighs) times 60. And I thought, and, 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 you know, what, what offended me as much as that, as what I was doing to the merchant offended me just as much. When I did that, I was getting $500 in commission. So I'm like, wait a second here. Somebody's making, you know, $5,800. You know, yeah. how am I only getting 500 bucks here? That's not right. So that offended me, you know, as a, as a capitalist, that offended me almost as much as the, what was happening to the merchants. So um, I then took a step back started looking for another processing company. At that point, I was in a good prospecting habit, which I'll talk more about. And then I found a, a good company that everybody would know on here on the podcast, uh, one of the leaders. And so then I moved over to selling for them. Um, and then uh, did that for about eight months or so. Uh, so, you know, I was in the business for almost a year. And then I started doing the videos and the rest, I think everybody knows of, you know, getting the training out there. And, and, wow. So yeah. it was only a year in. 
Yeah, not even, I don't even think it was a year. I think it was maybe seven or eight months. And, you know, and a big, a big rationale for that for me was my experience of this sure. three hour training. And right. then I ended up having to take this deep dive myself to figure everything out because nobody trained me about anything. And I thought, you know, if they're aggressively recruiting and there's all these companies bringing all these agents in, maybe somebody should offer some training to these people because they're probably feeling stupid like I am and they want right. to something. So yeah, so the rest is history, but that's how I, that's how I got in. So, so just to back up a second. Yeah. So you were a 1099 at that point. The when you went time. to the first I've, I've always, I've always, always been, been a 1099. Yes. Okay. And yeah. just out of curiosity, did you think that was advantageous or was it the employer that thought that was advantageous? Well, it was definitely advantageous for the, for the process, for the ISO, right? Right, um, right. However, again, my initial experience wasn't all bad. In fact, I actually owe my success, I think, to the way that that company operated and the fact that they treated me like an employee. Um, okay. You know, because again, like a lot of people, when I get into this industry, I was very skeptical, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was sure. like, again, I, I was like literally I was still, I was interviewing at places to go be a regional marketing manager at very, you know, companies. XYZ like, company. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I was looking for a real job. I really, you know, I was like, I'm not, this is straight commission. This is ridiculous. Right. 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 But because they had me going to these appointments, because I had the sales manager, I had a daily sales meeting. Like we had this structure. It did force me to actually give it a go. Uh -huh. And, and when I did, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, this is pretty cool. You know, this has opportunity. Yeah. I'm like, I can sell this. Now I got to begin with a company that's going to pay me more than, you know, $10 per mid residual after 200 accounts, which I'll talk about later. But, you know, I'm like, okay, there's something here and there's money to be made. And then at that point, once the motivation was there and I understood what it was, the confidence built up a little bit. Then I went to an opportunity where I didn't need that kind of structure. And I was able to be really successful with it. Right, right. So, you know, let that, that's a really good, that's a really good introduction to what I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of, okay, so let's say you're an agent right? and, uh, you know, you start getting some sales in, right? Yeah. You know, you start, you start getting, getting wet, you know, yeah. getting, get, getting your feet wet. Sure. Um, you know, what point do you evaluate, um, your, your relationship with the processor and what are some of the considerations? Sure. So I, I think what's really important here is maybe, maybe really even backing up a little bit because, you know, the idea is from, from day one, one of the most important things you have to, to understand about yourself when you get into this business is, are you looking for a career, a job, or are you looking to start a business? Mm -hmm. Sure. And unlike a lot of people on social media and things like that, I actually don't have a general preference there. I really, really don't. Um, there are salespeople who really do want that structure and, and even at different points in their life. You know what I mean? When mm -hmm. I started out, I needed to be a W-2 employee. I really did because I wasn't totally sold on the business and I really needed somebody to kind of give me that accountability and structure. And again, I was a 1099 legally, right. but I was a W-2 you know, in a court of law. I mean, you know, I was told when I needed to go places. Where I was given, I, I was go. given resources that I had to present, you know, is right, I was being right. controlled by the, the company and that was a good thing for me. Um, and so I think that, I think the first question is what are you looking for? And again, that can change, you know, for mm -hmm. me, once I had, you know, I think I sold maybe 30, 40 accounts in my first couple of months with them. I mean, I sold a lot. I, I'm good at sales. That's always been something I'd never problem with. So I was good at sales, but you know, 
once I, I got to a point and I'm like, well, wait a minute, I, I know what I'm doing. Then all of a sudden it switched for me. And, I, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, this is a job really, but I could actually start a business with this. Mm-hmm. And, but for a lot of people, they, they, no, no, they realize, Hey, I want to make a lot of sales. So I think, I think, you know, they realize they need the structure and the accountability to make the sales. Mm-hmm. So the question at the beginning is very simple. And that is, what is your best shot at getting your first 30 accounts under your belt? Right. Right. You know, if that's W2, go W2. If it's 1099, go 1099. But, you know, what is your best shot at getting those initial sales? Who's going to train you? Who's going to support you? Who's going to show you the ropes and give you the coaching and the mentoring? So that is the more important part when you're getting those first 30 accounts, because what a lot of agents don't realize in our industry is, you know, getting the first, you know, 10, especially and really even the first 30 just getting those sales is the only thing that matters in this business. I mean, it's just so right. difficult and you need a lot of help to get it. Yeah. 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 Well, what about if we can just digress for a second? I don't think sure. it's a big digression, but what about agreements? Because I mean, yeah. this is all dependent on the agreement you have with the processor, right? And yes. I mean, they're all over the place. And it would seem yes. that to me that you need to be really careful about what you're, what you're yeah. agreeing to, you know, yeah. what you're signing on that dotted line about. I'm really glad you brought that up, Patty. That's a great question because I think even from the beginning, um, there are two things that are crucial when you're looking into agreements uh, in our industry. Now, I should definitely mm-hmm. preface this by saying neither of us are attorneys. This is not legal advice. This is our opinion, no, right? But just experience. Yeah, experience. So, you know, two things I always tell agents when they get into the business that are, they're new, whether it's W-2 or 1099, doesn't matter. There's two things, okay? Number one, you cannot be locked into exclusivity. Okay. Yes, you cannot yes. be locked into exclusivity. That is just, you know, it's a death knell. it is. So yeah. now, you know, you, there's definitely an argument to be made that it's not enforceable anyway, um, that, you know, you'd be able to switch. But the idea is again, like, like what happened with me, I got in with a company and turned out they were kind of a scam. I mean, they, they literally have been shut down by the attorney general of the state of Texas. So, um, Ooh. you know, they were a bad company. I didn't realize that until, you know, a little bit in, once I realized I switched to a good company, but I mean, you know, you don't know what you're getting into for sure. You can mm-hmm. easily make a mistake. Don't get yourself locked in. That's number one. Um, mm-hmm. And number two is you need to make sure that at some reasonable point, you own your residual income. Yes, yes. Right? No matter right. what, even if you leave the company. And so I'll tell you how I came up with some pretty good questions. Uh, even way back then, after I got burned, uh, I was like, okay, wait a minute. You know, I sold all these accounts and I got no residual. And I was, you know, what, what did I do wrong? So I started figuring out that when I talked to a processing company, I would always ask them some questions. I would say, you know, number one, if I don't like your company after a month and I want to go sell for somebody else, am I going to be able to do that? Mm-hmm. Right? In the same right. industry, you know? Um, and I would look, where in the agreement does it say that I can do that? That's the important right. thing. Not, not your word that I can do that. I want to see it in the I agreement. want it in, pay, in writing. Right. right. Um, and then and then secondly, I would, the, as far as the residuals, I would just say a, a question. I would say, look, let's say I sell 20 accounts for you guys and then God forbid I get in a car wreck and I'm not able to sell for 12 months, What maybe never again, right? Mm-hmm. Where in the contract does it state that I'm still going to get paid on those accounts? Yes. Right? Yes. Now, right. having said all that, I do believe it is reasonable for a company that's going to give you support and training to have what we call breakage or to have a vested number where the idea is, hey, if your residuals are less than $200, $300 a month, um, we're not going to pay you, right? Like if you leave sure. the business and your residuals are really, you, you sold five, six accounts, 
Right. We're not right. going to pay you. And, you know, if you're worried about that, you, you really shouldn't even be in the business in the first place. Um, so I think that's totally reasonable. But at some reasonable point, it should be like, okay, but if my residuals are over 300, no matter how many sales I make, no matter what I do, I get to keep my residual, right? And it's like, right. yeah. So even if you're W-2, you should still make sure that that's in your contract. And that's not that difficult. They can very easily convert that uh, income to 1099 income. So the idea would be- That was going to be my next question. Yeah, you can you right. convert it from W-2 to, to 1099? Absolutely. There are a lot of companies now that do this. They bring people in as W-2, but they say, look, we're going to pay you as a W-2 employee, but if at any point we part ways, and as long as you've reached X number of accounts or residual or whatever, then we're going to continue paying your residual as a 1099 for the life of those accounts. Okay. Right. So just make sure you're not exclusive. Make sure that you have lifetime vested residuals. Those are the only two things that matter. Even if your residual percentage is not that great, even if the comp isn't that good, you're getting those first 30 accounts under your belt. And, you know, then I think, Patty, you'd ask me a question about was it, Pat, you know, once we get to some point, right, as far as. Right, running, right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you get to that point, you know, so, so, okay. So once you have the, you know, first few under your belt, right, you're going to, you know, you got to kind of reassess the relationship. Yes. Right. Yes. So let's say then you get maybe a couple hundred accounts under your belt. You know, you're right. much more experienced. You're feeling a lot more com uh, confident about what you're doing. Right. Like the processor you're working with. Yeah. What should you be expecting in terms of compensation? Yeah. So, such a good question. And I, I, don't, I really haven't answered this publicly in quite a long time. So I'm going to give some actual information today about, you know, some residual splits and yeah. Right. So, so let, let's first of all, make really clear this distinction. And this is something that agents just really struggle to understand in our industry. You understand you have a residual split. So let's talk about that for just a second. For those that are sure. really, really new, let's do the 30 second spiel. Okay. Yep. Like any business, we have revenue and expenses. Our revenue minus our expenses equals our profit. Like any right. other business, whether it's a mm -hmm. bicycle shop, a hot dog stand, in our business, our revenue is the fees that merchants pay to us to process right. credit card payments. Right. The the expenses or the cost is going to be things like interchange fees, um, card brand fees, um, even schedule A costs. So your processor is going to have some cost processor that they charge costs. Processor costs, sure. Right. So when you when you put all that together, let's use some just really generic kind of average numbers. So let's say we have a pizza shop and they're doing $10,000 a month in volume, just to make the math easy. It's a small place. Okay. So right. they do $10,000 a month. And let's say that we're charging them flat rate 3%. So okay. they're paying $300 to process $10,000 worth of transactions. All right. Okay. We can generally assume that between the interchange and the card brand fees, there's going to be about a 2% on average, 2 to 2.2% cost. Right. Okay. Then we're going to have some other miscellaneous fees from the, the Schedule A costs, et cetera. But let's just call it 2.2%. So 10,000 times 3% is $300. That's what they're paying in fees. So if they get a credit card processing statement, the merchant, that pizza shop owner, and look at it, it says, hey, we processed $10,000 with the transactions. We deposited that 10,000 into your bank account. You're going to pay us $300 because you're at 3% flat rate. Mm -hmm. Then as the agent, you're, you should be getting a residual report. And that report will say, hey, we collected $300 from the merchant. We had, you know, 2%, uh, you know, interchange cost, you know, 0.2% uh, or 20 basis points of card brand fees and Schedule A costs. So that we take that, that's $220. So we right. take that away. That left us with $80 of what our industry calls margin or gross margin. Okay. Right. So right. 
you generated $80 in gross margin. So now the question is two things when it comes to compensation. Number one, how much did you get paid when you made that sale, if anything? Okay. And, and number two, what percentage of that $80 are you getting? Right. So there's our first trade-off. And this is a super important trade-off that agents do not understand. Listen, if you don't have money in the bank, you need upfront compensation. Right. Because not only do you have to keep the lights on, pay the mortgage, you know, all of that. But in addition to that, there are going to be times where getting an account is going to cost you money. They of may course. need a special point of sale system. They right. may need whatever. And they may want you to split the cost of their early termination fee or whatever. So sure. we got to look at all of the upfront loaded compensation. And also remember that cash is not the only way that a processor can pay you an upfront bonus. There's also free equipment. Well, that's what um, I was going to, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, right? if they, if the processor gives you equipment to give to them, you know, to give to the merchant, that no longer becomes a cost. It becomes part of your, uh, you know, part of your all it, well, it does become a cost, but I mean, it's, right. it's, it's part, part of your, of your compensation, compensation in, in a yeah. way. And, and of course, you know, now if they're giving it to the merchant, quote unquote, free, but charging them a $20 rental fee. Well, that's not, that's different, but I'm talking right. about, it's actually just costing the money out the door to get this equipment placed. Right. They're doing that because they're trying to help you make the sale. So right. again, always remember as an agent, you have to be able to make the sale to make any money. So right. it's great that you have a, you know, 97% split, you know, Mr. Experienced Rep. And, but the thing is your, your processor does nothing for you. They provide right. no equipment, no right. support. They never pick the phone up when the merchant calls and right. you can't close any deals. And when you do, they cancel. So I don't care about your 90% split. That's stupid. That used like, to it used to crack me up because we'd see all those ads in the green sheet, you know. Yes, yes. Give you a you know ninety percent split, and I used to think of what. <laughs> right, right. That too. Right? That too. So yeah. a lot of companies are gonna they're gonna inflate their schedule a cost and things of that nature. So what sure. you have to understand is the first trade off is the upfront versus the residual. Now again, if you have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank or you're financially well off and you're in a position to start your business where you can afford to buy equipment, where you can afford to hire support people, you know, all of these things, then absolutely maximize. There aren't a that. lot of people like that though, right? No. I mean, right. <laughs> then you want to maximize your residual, but if not, you got to look at the trade-offs, but there's another trade-off Patty that I actually think is even more important than the upfront versus the residual. There's another residual trade-off and that okay. is, processor support and resources versus residual. Mm, yes, yes, okay. right? Because if you're not getting the support, well, the residuals are just going to dwindle away. Well, not only that, but but yeah, you may not even make the sale. There right. are so many sure. agents that will reach out to me and say, James, I have a 85% split with this company, but um, they don't pick the phone up when I call. I don't really understand the terminal options. Um, I tried, I, almost, I lost the sale last week because they couldn't integrate with the point of sale system that I needed, blah, 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 blah. And when I talk to them on the phone in 30 seconds, I'm able to tell them what they needed to do to get that deal, right? Mm. But, but the processing company, what you have to understand is if they're giving you, I'm not saying that these companies are bad. If they're giving you, you know, 85% or something, they're not bad. The thing is they're just positioned to service somebody else. Right. They're positioned to service larger organizations that are selling processing that don't need their help, that don't right. need their support, that don't need anything really, right? Right. right. And so understand there's this trade-off of 
support versus um, residual income. And you may have to give up some portion of your residual income to offset things like support, even things like taking on risk, which I never recommend an individual agent do ever, even a small ISO for that matter. I right. never recommend you sure. take on risk. So, so there's these things that are trade-offs, Patty. And I think, you know, I think for the agent that's got, you know, 100, 200 accounts, you know, when you're starting to build a serious book, you want to be getting a reasonable residual split at that point. Um, what's industry average? I would say right now, industry average probably is around, you're getting, if you're getting a couple hundred dollars or two to three, maybe $400 in upfront value of some kind, you know, free terminal money upfront, whatever, true right. up, you know, re- revenue. You're probably industry average right now is probably a 50% split right? 50% residual split. That's a true <laughs> residual split, meaning you have a reasonable schedule A cost. Um, and then if you're not getting any upfront, anything, you know, no free terminals, any of that industry average is probably in that 70 to 80% range. Um, mm-hmm. You know, now, again, having said that, I'm, you know, I'm giving this information out. And one thing that concerns me is our listeners, some of our listeners are like, well, I'm only getting 60%. I'm getting ripped off. Hold on a minute. You know, is your company providing you with a culture and some accountability and some structure and some support right. that is helping you to make more sales? If so, you're getting a fantastic residual split, right? Right, Because 60% of 200 deals a year is a lot better than 80% on 40 deals a year. Right, right. You know, the game is about getting a lot of sales. It's not, and, and getting a processor that knows how to help you keep those sales. So they keep getting you residual. So, 60% on an account that cancels after six months is nothing compared, you know, like that's terrible, right? I'd rather have 50% on an account that stayed with me for five years. Of course, of course. You know, so now, lifetime value. So there's some other considerations I would say there. So, but when you're at that point, when you're at the two, three, 400, and you're, right. you know, really building your big. book, yeah. getting pretty big. Um, I, I want to return to the original question though. At that point, should you be a W-2 or should you be a 1099? Yeah, I so mean, because W two, you're going to be getting a, a smaller residual for obvious reasons, right? Well, maybe, and if you're maybe doing not. that good, <laughs> yeah, okay. maybe maybe not. So what I would say is, again, I really sincerely believe this depends on the person. And I know this episode, I'm 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 already I'm already envisioning the comments I'm going to get um, from people saying, James, this is stupid. You should always be 1099. I already got some of those um, from the last episode, but I, right. I just disagree. I really do it, and I'll tell you why because. You know, there are agents in this industry and the fact that you, you know, I'm talking to people that are going to comment now. The fact that you, Mr. Commenter, don't know any of them doesn't mean they don't exist. It means they run in different circles than you. Exactly. There are agents right now in this industry who are W-2, who get paid a salary plus massive bonuses, Mm -hmm. who have a lifetime vested residual income who are W-2. Wow. Okay. 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 Lots of them, actually. There are probably more, they're probably, I don't know. There's probably about an even number, in my opinion, probably an even number of six-figure agents that are W-2 as six-figure agents that are 1099. Okay. Pretty, pretty okay. close. That's, that's news to me. I did not realize it was that, it was that close. Yeah. It's a, and, yeah. The, and the reason is because, frankly, there are some monster companies in our industry that are all W-2 and uh-huh. that treat their agents very well. And what you understand is those W-2 opportunities, generally speaking, they are more front-end heavy. So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, Several of these W-2 companies do something similar where they do kind of like a residual buyout up front. So we talked about the upfront versus the residual, that trade-off. You right, know? right. Well, they may buy, you know, 12 months of margin as the upfront bonus or something crazy. And so, you know, people are getting, you know, X percentage of the total gross margin for 12 months upfront. 
So they'll bring a deal on board and they may get $2,000, $3,000 for that sale. And then they're only getting maybe 10, 15, 20% long-term residual income. Okay. Right? Okay. That's um, what I was accustomed to seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the, you know, you'll have that. But, you know, what's funny about that is it's like, why is one of these options good and one of these bad? I mean, getting 3000 you know, up front on an account, if it equates to a 30X buyout or whatever. Well, that's your, exactly, yeah. What, who cares? Like, it's the money is the money. So again- The money's there in the bank right now, so. Right. You, you know, and again, you may be at a point where you're saying what you want to do is you want to build lifetime vested residuals and your goal is to maximize your recurring income and you're willing to sacrifice your short-term cash flow in mm -hmm. service of that objective. If right. that's you, become a 1099, right? Find a good processing company that's going to give you the support that you need to be successful and then get that residual and, and start building it up. Mm -hmm. But you might say, you know what? I'm more motivated when I'm making $200,000 a year consistently and I don't want to give that up ever. And right. I think it'd be great if I could do that while also building 15, 20%, you know, in the background, great. Then go yeah, make sales sure. and make, make $2,000 every time you make a sale as a W-2 right? And build right. and keep making a fortune while building your residual. There's nothing inherently wrong with that model. It's just different. And I think the key is, again, going back to what I said earlier, is are you looking for a job or are you looking to start a business? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and the, I, uh, one of my pet peeves, Patty, is people that make it seem like the business option is the one that's good and the employee, the, the job, the evil job. Why? Why? Like, yeah. I mean, what makes you happy? What makes you successful? What makes you productive for many, many, many people? I know now me, you put me in a W2 job right now. I will get fired within like a week. Like you and me both. Uh, I am not, <laughs> you know, I, I don't even know how to do it anymore. I really don't. I know yeah. how to hire people. I don't know how to work for people. I just don't, yeah. you know, that's not my makeup. I'm an entrepreneur, have been my entire life. Right, so right. whenever I had a job, I was always bucking against everything. And the HR always hated me and is like, yeah, yeah. what is up with this guy? All he wants to do is work. And, you know, so I had these problems. <laughs> I had the same problem. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But again, I reckon, fully recognize that that's totally different for other people. And so there's different, there's a different fit and that, you know, different people need different things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had a, my, my niece was, was staying with me earlier this week and yeah. she pulls out her PC and, you know, she's a traveling nurse and she's doing some, yeah. she's like, Aunt Patty, I don't get how you can work from home all the time. I would yeah. be like so it's unproductive. See, it's the, I can't do that either. That's, and that's so interesting, right? Like right? if I work from now, I got four little kids there. Um, but right. even before that, I've never been great at working from home. I like to have an office to come to. I, you know. Yeah. And, and with her, you know, I have an office with a door that shuts that right. I, you know, right. but, um, but I was different. like, I was like so unhappy when I was in an office. Right. And I spent so much time jumping through the corporate hoops. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, sure. after five, I could get my work done. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Which exactly. was like, no, it's just not yeah. for me. It's been so long that if they put right. me in office today, like you, I'd be fired in a week. Yeah, I'd be, you know, I, I would get the insubordination thing pretty quick, I think, at this really, point. Really? In fact, I had a, my but, last employer you know, told me I didn't play well with others. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny about that, too? I think it's easy as well for people to get the idea that success in those two realms is requires totally different things. And there are subtle differences, but I mean... When I was, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I was the youngest marketing, you know, branch marketing manager uh -huh. in the company. I had I had 30 employees like, 
you know, I that worked for me because I worked right. so hard. They were willing to put up with me because my results because were so Because you worked good. so hard and you got yeah. such great results. Yeah. You know, and yeah, so, exactly. but I mean, again, now it's definitely not the right fit for the stage of life I'm in, but I think everybody's a little different there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, let's, because you mentioned, you allude to your stage of life now, and we all know yeah. that you have, you know, your own company and lots of folks right. working for you. Let's put it into the perspective of the, of the agent, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, once they're ready to scale, you know, they've really, yeah. they've really, they're going great guns. They have a great portfolio, you know, what should be their pro- hiring priority? Should they, yeah. you know, should they go out and get more agents to work for them? Maybe they should go get an assistant that does their scheduling for them. Maybe sure. they need a programmer. What, sure. what should be some of the priorities there if you're trying to scale up and become, you know, a sub ISO or yeah. even an ISO? I love this question. It's such a great question. And I can tell you from talking to the most successful people in our industry for the last, you know, 12 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got to scale yourself. You have to have the discipline and the humility to scale yourself mm-hmm. before you try to scale others. And so right. what I mean by that is your hiring priority should be maximizing your strengths, mm-hmm. not the things that you want to do, the things that you do best. Right. Let right. me say that again. Yeah. Hire people so that you can maximize the things you do best, not so that you can do the things you want to do. So if you're a really good salesperson and you can, that's what you do best, right? you should be out there selling and having people do the other stuff that yes. you're not so happy with. On the other hand, if you're a really good manager, maybe you should be hiring agents and training them and getting them out on the street and building your portfolio that way. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. Yes. With one caveat there, okay. going down that path of, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that use that as a little bit of an excuse to say, oh, I, I'm a really good manager. I'm such a good manager. I really don't need to sell anymore. <laughs> well, hold on a minute. You know, so I would question a little bit the idea that you're not a very good salesperson, but you would be a fantastic sales manager. Excellent point. Excellent that's, point. That's a little yeah. bit, you know, that's a little bit crazy. So to sure. me, if you think you're going to be a really good sales manager, that means you're probably very good at sales. Maybe you would be an amazing sales manager, but you got to at least be decent at sales, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what you want to do is you want to scale yourself first. And let me give you another reason for this. What I see a lot of people do is they bring on two or three salespeople. Right. And these salespeople need like a massive amount of support and help. Right. And they're totally on their own. They're trying to help them do everything. They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. What I did was I started by hiring an assistant that did my scheduling for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then I start, I hired somebody that did my installations for me. Mm-hmm. So they would go. So I got a part, a guy that was working uh, part-time at a computer shop, a you know, high school kid who's a senior in high school and, and uh, you know, got him to, to do this and run around because he was just graduated. He's going into college in a couple of years. So he thought I'll, you know, work with James for a while. So right. he went and did my installs for me. I had somebody, then I got somebody to do my customer service. You know, my assistant started doing all my, all the paperwork because back then it was all paper, you know, the application. Right. Sure. sure. Um, so I had people doing all these things and my assistant did all my scheduling. So when I give you an example of what I'm talking about, scaling yourself, when I walked into a business, when I would leave that business, I would stop. I pulled up my phone. I hit one button on an app I had. That's, I had it set up and I would send a voice note to Angela, you know, Angela, right? Um, I sent a voice note to Angela, who was my assistant even back then. And 
she took care of everything. So I would say, hey, I just talked to Bill at XYZ Hardware Store here on Plank Road. And Bill said, I need to come back Thursday when his partner Susan is here, blah, 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 blah. And I would go to the next one. So right. she would literally, she would then put that in your scheduling. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And now when I, so now I'm selling 25, 30 deals a month okay. because I'm all, all I'm doing is selling. I'm really good at it. Well, guess what happened when I hired my first sub agent? Well, Angela helped them with their schedule and their, you know, stuff. My support person helped with their merchants. My installation person installed their terminals. Right. right so right. I was actually pretty happy with that. So sure. I had already built this kind of support infrastructure because I scaled myself. Mm -hmm. Then I knew that I could scale other people rather than just me blindly hiring people, removing myself from the equation where it's like, well, I can't make any sales at all because I hired two people. Right. If you can't make any sales because you hire two agents, you need to fire those two agents and you need to rethink your hiring strategy. You know, you might go from selling 25 a month to 15. I know people, I just had uh, Rich Norton. I, I'm just thinking of him because I did an event with him recently. You know, he's, he's selling personally 25, 30 accounts a month. And I think right now he has like 60 active agents, you know, like wow. you, you have to have a support infrastructure in order to do these things. You don't just right. go all by yourself and well, here we go. Let's see what happens. Like, you know, you, you don't do everything for the agents. What you do for the agents is the thing that you can, that only you can do, which is show them how to sell. You shouldn't right. be helping them with their paperwork and their accounts. If you're doing that, you need to take a step back and have the humility and have the discipline to scale yourself and to work hard for another six months or a year, hire some core people for 25, 30, 40, $50,000 a year, hire some core people, pay for them with your own efforts by going out and making a lot more sales than you were making, you know, do right. it the right way. Then when you bring people on, it's going to be just a lot better for you. Yeah. Yeah. This is really, this is really enlightening, James. A lot of really good advice here. Thanks. Um, I have one, I think, I know we're, we've been talking for a while, but I do have yeah. one more question I want to sure. hit you with. And that's something that's come up a lot for me over the years is, you know, you're building up a business, you're, you know, you, you go from being an agent to maybe ha being an, a sub ISO, sure. maybe you want to even make the next step, you know, at what point uh, should you be considering registering with the brands? Yeah, such a great question. I get it asked all the time as well. And what I tell people today is, you know, you need to have a good reason to register your brand. Um, there are only two, okay? If you're thinking of registering your brand for anything other than these two reasons, don't do it. Okay? There's only two. Number one is to negotiate better, more flexible compensation, okay? Mm -hmm. Some companies will give you a better deal because you're a registered brand. They may, very hard to find this today, but they may give you even portability at some point. You stay with us for five years, you can take your account somewhere else, that kind of thing. Um, so there's some flexibility options and some things available to the registered brand um, where you're taken a little bit more seriously. But I have to tell you at the end of the day, it's going to be stick count. So it's ultimately going to be how many sales you make. Um, you might be able to negotiate something slightly better as a registered brand, but not much. So the main reason is because you want to have your brand on the credit card processing statement right. that the merchant receives. Yeah. That is literally yeah. the only reason in my mind, because again, you can have your own website. It just has to, you know, comply with certain compliance things and stuff. But I mean, you can right. have your own brand. You can put your brand on your business cards. You know, you can do all of that anyway. So at the end of the day, is your logo going to be on the merchant agreement? And is it going to be on the, the statement? Um, and, you know, is it hampering your marketing efforts because you're running into compliance issues of like, well, we can't call ourselves a credit card processor, you know? 
So in my opinion, you got to be pretty large for those things to justify the investment, which is in the tens of thousands after you pay. It's a huge investment. Yeah, exactly. And and the opportunity cost. I mean, for Mm -hmm. six months, you're going to be spending a chunk of every day for six months and getting yourself registered that you could be spending growing your business. So it's a really big deal. There's a lot of companies now that have good white label programs where you can literally get your your brand on the statements and all that within a week or two. Um, without all of that cost and expense, there's some trade-offs, but there's some good white label programs now. So I think the idea of the full registration, I definitely think that the bar for that has risen in terms of how large you need to be for that to make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's still a viable option, you know, at at some point, I'd be glad to discuss that with anybody if you're looking at your specific situation, but, um, you know, there's good white label programs out there that I think have made it where it's like, do you really want to register? You better be pretty large. You better have a good team in place to do that. Yeah, I, I've seen some of those. In fact, I was at MWAA and ran into a couple of those. And, yep. you know, it was like, wow, this is a this is a very viable option if I was, you know, yep. a good yep. size sub ISO. So, I mean, I mean, the big trade off there for a lot of people is, you know, to do that, that company has to register your brand as a DBA, which right. kind of means that in some respects they own your brand. So you oh, can't, yeah, you can't uh-huh. really register your brand through anybody else at that uh-huh. point. Right. Now, again, you can negotiate. It's all negotiable, you know, but depending on the ISO, you do have to be a little careful there that you don't get stuck. So that's the only trade off. But again, that versus taking six months off of growing your business to register. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. So, well, well, James, um, yeah, this has been great. This has been really great. I really appreciate uh, you letting me interview you again. And well, uh, I think I our it. listeners and uh, viewers are going to you know, get some real good meat from this. Yeah, well, uh, let me say one last thing I'll, I'll make available, Patty. I do it usually once a year. I send an email out, but I'll make it available right now. Um, if you're looking for the right credit card processing company, you have questions about anything I talked about today, um, I'll do a free call with you today. Uh, not today, but you know, at some point here. So if you go to ccsalespro.com, there's a link right at the top called Find a Processor. Uh, uh-huh. And I have different links there if you're green, if you're experienced, or if you're an ISO owner or exec. And I do like a free 15 minute Zoom call. I'd be glad to help you out uh, to answer questions that you have and even make an introduction to a processing company if uh, the conversation warrants that. Oh, that's a that that's a that's a great deal. If uh, if you're listening again, ccsalespro.com. Up in the right is where it uh, says uh, find a processor. Yep, right on the top center actually, and it says find a processor. So find a processor. Check it out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Patty. Thank you. Well, James, this is where we give a shout out to our sponsor, NMI. Um, you know, one of the things I I, I saw them at N, at M, N, MWAA, the Midwest Acquirers Association. A lot of acronyms. A lot of today. acronyms here. Right? <laughs> yeah, I get a little get a little slurry sure. on that, but um, you know, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was you know what they refer to as organizational hierarchy, but it's right. you know the idea of being able to choose a platform that provides flexibility to manage and grow your business, you know, sort of like the ISO back office um, organization. Yeah. And and I think it's super interesting. I think a lot of people don't realize what NMI has to offer here because there's a lot of ISOs that actually board all of their merchants or the vast majority through the NMI gateway because Mm -hmm. they have, you know, they support physical terminals as well um, and things like that. And so they don't have their own physical devices, but they, you know, they integrate with a lot. Um, And so the idea there is a lot of times you'll have either an ISV or, you know, an ISO that's focused on a particular vertical Mm-hmm. And you can just so easily, and I know because we had this, uh, like I'll give you an example. We had our um, self-storage software company. Right, I remember we were, that. 
you're, we're man helping self-storage companies manage. We integrated with NMI and it was super easy. Whenever we made a sale, um, we sent the merchant agreement into the ISO that we were using and then they would give us back the bar sheet and then my team would be able to go in easily into NMI, add them right in there, no problem, um, set them up. We can set permissions of who manages them. We can see what their processing activity is. We can even go in and impersonate, you know, like kind of like not impersonate, but like log into their account. <laughs> right, you know I mean? right. And we yeah, can see what, what they're doing. You know what I mean? So it was, I thought it was, uh, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a very robust back office to manage, um, you know, the mids and have all your different users back there and resellers and all that. And you're not only managing your, your agents, you're managing your merchants through the same, uh, know, absolutely through the same absolutely. platform, which makes it so much easier. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, I wouldn't, you know, it's not a uh, replacement of something like an iris or anything like that, it, but sure. the idea is it, it really is a gateway, but that, that gateway solution then on the back end, that gateway connects to a lot of different things and they have such a robust thing in the back office to be able to see all of that in one place. Um, and right. they're really making it better every quarter. They're making improvements. So if yeah. I would tell people, if you have not checked out the ISO back office for NMI, please go check it out. Go to ccsalespro.com slash N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, I, NMI. So ccsalespro.com slash NMI. Fill out that form and just talk with them. See if there's a good fit. Let them know who, the types of merchants you're selling, the type of hardware right. you're placing. They can really help you to make your ISO much more flexible. And as Patty mentioned, give you that really robust back office. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, we have some good economic, uh, good news on the economic front. Uh, the U.S. C Commerce Department reports that retail sales grew by 0.6% in June, bolstering expectations that the final numbers for Q2 will show strong economic growth. Um, Great. You know, consumers, consumer spending was 11.4% on an annualized basis in the first quarter. So it was up 11.4%? Up 11.4%. Nice. Uh, and GDP estimates for the quarter hover, for this quarter, hover around 9%, with a poll of economists conducted by CNBC showing expectations of 7%. I was going to say, 9% is big. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. 9% for the quarter, you know, 7% uh, for the year. This is just to put that in perspective, that would be the fastest growth recorded in the U.S. economy since 1984, which James, I think you were still a toddler then, and I was settling into my first mortgage. Yeah, I was I was one year old in yeah. uh, 1984. So now yeah. let me ask you this: that's year over year versus obviously the COVID year. Yes, you, so you know, of course, right? Maybe maybe you've seen data, or I, you know, are are we up from before COVID, or you know what I mean? Like, have you? Seen yeah, we're that? well, you know, compared to June 2020, we're up 18 percent. The data I showed, I saw, and um, it's been a couple of weeks since I've seen this sure, data, sure. but year over 2019, it was about 0.2.3. Got it. Okay. So we're, okay. we're, we've made it back. We've made low. it back. We're at pre-COVID or just above pre-COVID level. Okay. Got it. Which considering, you know, we're yeah, still dealing shabby. with, yeah, it's not too shabby yeah. at all. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to, um, give you a sense of some of the, some of the sectors okay. for, you know, that, that how things, you know, certain sectors performed. 
Um, receipts at electronics and, and uh, appliance stores were up 3.3%. Okay. Food and beverage sales were up 0.6. Online retail sales were up 1.2. But of course, June was when Amazon had its prime day. So that sure. probably had a lot to do with that. Yeah, sure. Furniture store sales fell 3.6%. Sporting okay. goods, hobby, musical instruments, and books dropped 1.7, which I think is because we all kind of like, you know, went gung-ho into our hobbies yeah. when we were at home, right? Right. Um, right? And we're sort of now spending on other things. Yeah, sure. Um, and then there was, there was this from the American Consumer Credit Counseling. They do a financial health index. Mm -hmm. It was released this week. It shows consumers are getting more comfortable with buying with credit. According to the data, half of U.S. consumers took out their credit cards to pay for purchases in the last quarter. Wow. Uh, as opposed to debit us. cards. Yeah, it's great news for us. The survey also found that 40%, 7% of adults um, are confident that their income security, about their income security and uh, security and continued employment. Uh, that's up from 42% in March. So, you know, that's, positive news. Seems, it seems kind of, wait, say that percentage again. That sounds kind of low. <laughs> 47%. Well, you know, right now we're dealing with states where the COVID rates are high and the Delta yeah. variant and so forth. Wow. I think that's kind of well, still like more than half of Americans don't feel confident about what was it again? Well, uh, about their income security and continued employment. <laughs> oh, good night. Okay. Well, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So about yeah. half and half. I mean, is I mean it's up, what you're looking it's, it's up it's which up, is good, but which is wow. good, but you know, I yeah. think I, I did not find their data for a year ago, but I would venture to guess it was way down then. It was probably 10% um, or something. Yeah, like 10 knows. or 20%. Yeah. yeah. But I wow. still think overall, you know, if we have GDP yeah. growing and strong, we have retail sales coming back, right. uh, credit card usage coming back. I think that's all good news for, for people listening. Love it. Yeah, good stuff. Well, hopefully that'll those trends will all continue moving in the right direction. And uh, That's what we can hope for. Awesome. Well, thanks, Patty, for the update. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.